are in the Gospel of John this morning, uh, chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll get, get back to that in just a minute. So John chapter 1. Uh, we are still in John chapter 1 and will be for another week or two. Uh, but a couple of things. Um, first of all, just wanted to... Um, just, just not only do we want to bring the awareness that Jeff and Jeff are headed to Ecuador for this pallet trip, but I also want to invite you uh, to pray with them on a daily basis because of what they are doing. Um, they are asking for God's insight and wisdom on the ground as they uh, meet uh, people. They will also be thinking about a trip from or a team from our church returning with them uh, this coming summer. And so we want to pray for them on a daily basis. They come back Thursday. So today through Thursday, just invite you into a time of prayer as a church, praying for Jeff and Jeff the Holy Spirit would guide them and give them wisdom and insight. Um, additionally, you know, we are, we're not only living the mission in uh, the international scope of things, but living the mission here. This is why we are building a new building. Um, so you're starting to see some things happening. There's new pink paint on the sidewalk out here. Somebody asked about that. Uh, it's not vandalism. It's supposed to be there. Um, they're making uh, preparations as they get ready to put in our uh, fire lane and parking on the east side. They're also simultaneously working on the electricity and the underground utilities on this side. And so from week to week, you're going to see that. Um, and so hopefully uh, that won't interrupt the flow of our campus any. But just be prepared as you come on the campus on Sunday morning. Uh, there may be a day where you're, you're asked to go around the other side of the building or come in a different way. And, uh, and that's just going to be the inconvenience of the next few months as we continue to live the mission here locally as well. I um, wanted to bring that to your attention. One other announcement to make. This is an, a big announcement. It's exciting. So we've added an additional uh, staff member this year. And, and actually, this guy was already on staff last year, but we're adding to what he does. And so I want to introduce you to Graham Gunn. Uh, we have a picture of Graham. He is going to be our building and grounds assistant. So yeah, he has been handling all of our um, kind of small lawn maintenance over the last couple of years, doing an excellent job. And so we've taken that job description and expanded it to janitorial work and the broader uh, campus in terms of uh, landscaping. And so um, if you've noticed, the bathrooms are already smelling cleaner. Uh, that's why, because Graham is doing a fabulous job. He's very detail-oriented, um, just a faithful servant to the Lord. And I promise you, when he does something here at the church, he's doing it unto the Lord. And so we're excited to have Graham uh, on board. So if you see him, greet him, welcome him to the team. Uh, we are excited to have him on board. All right, so we are uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We will be in chapter 1 today and next week. We have so far uh, been skipping over the verses about John the Baptist. I told you that last week. Because next week, we're going to come back and pick all those verses up and focus on the role of John the Baptist in the Gospel. And so today, is the same thing is going to happen today. We're going to skip over one verse. But I promise you, we'll come back next Sunday and we'll hit all of them together um, as we wrap up chapter one next week. So uh, today, uh, just a couple of things I want to kind of lay out before you in terms of intro. To begin with, uh, the gospel writer John is continuing to use this theme uh, that of the word. And on week one, he identified the word to us as being in the beginning, being with God, being God through whom all things were created. And we saw that who John is referring to is essentially Jesus, that Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God, and through Jesus, all things were made that were made. Well, the second week, we came back and we looked at how Jesus was not only in the beginning, but that Jesus brought light and life into the world, and the darkness was not able to overcome this true light of Jesus. And this week, we're going to continue that theme of the word into verse 14. Verse 14 begins... And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you are a faithful student of the Old Testament, if you ever read through the Old Testament or studied the Old Testament, there is a unresolved tension in the Old Testament that begins in Genesis chapter 3 and remains and continues all the way through the book of Malachi, the conclusion of your Old Testament. Here is the tension. There is a tension between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. In all the interactions between man and God, there is this tension, this great chasm, if you will, that separates, right, man from experiencing the fullness of the glory of God. So that when God interacts with man, he veils his glory in some form. Okay, and so God has always been a relational God interacting with man. We know that in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. Even after the fall, God interacts with the nation of Israel, leading them through the wilderness with the cloud and with the fire. We know that God speaks to Moses up on the mountain and reveals himself, right? But it's not until we get to the incarnation, to where Jesus steps into our world, that we begin to see what John is talking about here. So let's, let's walk through this. And so he says, the word became flesh, now, the big word that describes this phrase is the word incarnation. And in a general sense, the word incarnation means for uh, deity to dwell within human form, right? And so outside of Christianity, this word gets used in, in expressions like reincarnation. It's the idea that, that people are really just spirits and they just temporarily live in these human bodies. And once they're done with this human body and, it's, and it, they're done with it, then they reincarnate into another human body or another uh, form of creation and just continue on and so on and so forth. Reincarnation. But we're talking about from a Christian perspective is incarnation with a capital I. We're talking about the God of the universe that we've been reading about through the Old Testament, the creator, the heavens and the earth, incarnating, stepping into human form. This is what the angel is announcing to Mary in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, or he, when, the, when he announces, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now keep in mind, that announcement is made even though that tension is there. That because of our sin, we can't behold the fullness of the glory of God. There's this chasm, this separation between our presence and his. And so John says, the word, this one who was in the beginning through whom all things were created, the true light and life of men became flesh. Now, here's the misunderstanding about Jesus becoming flesh. Some would think that, well, that, in order for that to happen, then he would have to become less deity, right? So we talk about him stepping away from his throne of glory, stepping into the flesh, into our world, but what we don't mean to say is that he's not God anymore. Matter of fact, the scriptures would over and over again reiterate, he's still God, fully God, and yet fully human. Colossians 1, 19 says that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it's not like you just took part of God and put him in the body of Jesus and sent him to earth and the rest of God stayed somewhere in the heavens and kind of watched. So this really 
from a spiritual perspective, this dramatic thing happens when God steps into human form. Fully God, and yet at the same time, fully human. And this is what John is describing when he says the word became flesh. He's not saying that the word became not God anymore, but that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Philippians chapter two describes it this way. I like the way that Paul describes the incarnation starting in verse five. He says to the church, that's us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so the misunderstanding is that, well then if he emptied himself, then he became not God, but we keep reading. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the scriptures describe Jesus emptying himself or humbling himself. That's a description of fully God becoming also fully human to walk among us as a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. Right? And so that, that idea of Jesus coming to earth, fully God, stepping into fully man to serve us means what? That he was headed humbly to what? The cross. And so when he, we read that Jesus emptied himself, that's the description of him humbling himself to walk in human form. Fully God, fully man. All that was God dwelt in Jesus, yet he looked like us. Now, the next part of this phrase is really helpful because it says not only did the word become flesh, but that the flesh dwelt among us. And if you've been in church for any number of years and heard this passage preached or you've studied this in the original language, you know that this word dwelt is a really significant word. It reminds us of the tabernacle days of the Old Testament. This description that Jesus came in, you may have heard it this way, tabernacled among us. So let me just describe what, what's being expressed there. And we'll read it in just a minute. But in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was wandering through the wilderness and God was out in front leading them with his presence veiled, um, he, he, through Moses, established kind of a makeshift temple, right? So there's this temporary temple that they would carry with them and they called it the tent of meeting because the nation was living in tents. They were, right, mobile, walking nomads through the land following God. They also would set up a tent for God. It was called the tent of meeting or the, the tabernacle. And this would be the place where God's presence was housed. Now, as long as God's presence wasn't in there, you could walk in and out as you pleased. But if God's presence was in there, you better not walk in there. Why? Because of the tension between this, our sin and his holiness, boom, you'd be struck down dead. Okay, so that was the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And so what's being expressed by John is that, what? That the word has become flesh to tabernacle among us, to make his presence known among us. Think of it this way. This tells us so much about the heart of God in order, right, to relationally uh, exist and be close to the presence of his people who are wandering around in tents. He allowed his presence to be housed in a tent. Think about that. First of all, think about that being a nomadic people living in tents. When God says, pack up your tents, we're moving again, right? 
But God himself was willing to what? To live or to dwell in a tent among his tent dwelling people. Man, what a gracious view of God that paints for us. Instead of remaining far off as a deity, saying to his people, when you finally build a temple worthy of my presence, something spectacular that will proclaim my glory, then I will come and dwell among you. God said, no, I'm gonna dwell among my tent-dwelling people. Just, Just pitch a tent for me. Set it apart, but pitch one for me. Again, but what was different about that is that even though it housed the presence of God, the people, right, they couldn't go in. His, his glory was still veiled from the people. This is described in Exodus chapter 40, starting in 34. Then the cloud, which represented God's presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled what? The tabernacle, the inside. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You feel that tension? So this very tent that the people had built with their own hands, now they can't go in because why? Because God's glory is in there. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So when the cloud would go up, They say, hey, God's glory is moving. Let's pack up our stuff and get ready to follow. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journey. So the closest they could come to the glory of God was to know that the glory of God was inside the tent. That was as close as they could get. But now John is proclaiming that Jesus is this word that was in the beginning who was God through whom all things were created, who has become the true light and life of men, that what? That he has come to do what? To tabernacle among us, to dwell among his people. How did he do that? The word became flesh. That's how he did it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we're gonna come to that phrase, grace and truth, in a minute. But in Christ, we're able to somehow behold the glory of God. Somehow Christ stands in the gap, and we're gonna talk about this, between our sin, God's holiness, right, and allows us to do what? To see beyond the veil of the tabernacle to see the glory of God. And John says, in him we saw the glory of God. The glory of the only son from the father. Now again, God has always existed as a relational God, walking with Adam even in the garden, walking with the nation of Israel through the wilderness, though his presence, his glory was veiled. The incarnation, Christ, we know that after the resurrection, the ascension, At Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling with man. All of this is pointing to a day in the book of Revelation described as a day that there will be no more tears, no more suffering. And what is the highlight of that? What's the exclamation point on the book of Revelation? Oh, here it is. God will make his dwelling place with man. Permanently, finally. Not in the tent, not veiled, but exposed. Right? And that's what all of this is headed towards. And so here we read that. In Christ, we have beheld the glory of God. Now, I want to look at verse 16 with you. 
from his fullness. How much? Full, all. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And this is John's way of saying that we have all received something in Christ. And here's what it is, it's grace. Then you might ask the question, well, how much grace did we receive? John simply says, here's how I would just say it to you, grace upon grace. Now, why would he say it that way? Well, because we can't measure how much grace God has poured out on us, right? For two reasons, right? Number one, we can't calculate the amount of sin we have in our lives to even begin to think about how much grace we have, right? The book of Romans says what? That where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds how much? Equally? Actually, more, all the more. So you and I can't measure how much grace we have received. That's the first reason why it's simply grace upon grace. The second reason is we're not done receiving it. This is why Christians still need grace. Because today exists and tomorrow exists. And so John simply says, we've received grace, but let me tell you, put it to you this way, translate it this way, we have received in Christ grace upon grace. And you could just keep going, right? Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. I love the way that, that Paul talks about this grace in Ephesians 1. If you've been around for any number of years, you've heard me refer to this. In Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way, in him, this is Christ, we have redemption through his blood. What do we mean by redemption? He says, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his what? Grace. God is wealthy in grace, rich in grace. And then look at what he says, which he lavished upon us. And I love this, this illustration that comes from this word lavished. It's like the sloppy painter painting a fence. It's not the description of the detailed artist who is measuring every stroke and every dot of paint. This is the sloppy painter who's painting the fence to make sure that every crack gets filled, every hole gets filled, every side gets covered. Let's add another coat to it. Let's lavish it. So how much grace? Grace upon grace, lavished in grace, covered in grace through Christ. And now we're going to get to verse 17. I want to slow down for a minute because this is, this is a really helpful verse of Scripture. John says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, there's that phrase again, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the mistake is to think that what Moses brought and what Jesus brought were altogether different, Okay? We're actually gonna see that there's, a, there's a, quite a bit of overlap between what Moses brought and what Jesus brought. But to begin with, Moses brought what? The law. So God spoke the law through Moses, wrote it down on tablets, took it to the people. The law of God, which included a lot of things like how to worship God. But primarily, kind of the, 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 the pinnacle of the law was what? The Ten Commandments. And so Moses brings the law, but what Jesus brought was somehow different. Let's talk about what Moses brought. So the law, which came first, does some things for us. Some of those things are positive. It points us to the character of God. How do we know what God is, looks like? We read his law, right? God doesn't lie. He tells us to what? To not bear false witness. So the law describes the character of God to us, what he's like. 
The law becomes a standard of what holiness is, right? It's not up to the culture around us to tell us what holiness is or what is sin and what is not sin. God shows us his character in the law and he says, this is the standard of what is right and wrong. And all that comes through the law. But then the law does some other things. Like it exposes sin. Yeah, the Old Testament describes the word of God as a light unto our feet. Well, that same light shines back into our soul. Guess what it does? It exposes sin. And this is an uncomfortable thing, isn't it? It's an unsettling thing to have my sin exposed. It's why a lot of us, when we're walking in blatant, repetitive sin, we don't want to be around God or his people. Because when I get to the church, I get around his people, I'm around his presence, and what happens? I feel like I'm being exposed. And just exposing me without fixing me is not a comfortable thing. And that's what the law does. It shines as a light to show us where we're wrong. Raise your hand if you're a sinner. Man, 80% of the room is honest. Thank you. So, oh, two hands. Love it. This guy right here is like, count me in twice. All right, so how do you know that you are a sinner? The primary way is what? By the law. The law tells you when you fall short. This is what the law does. Moses brought the law. It points to the character of God. It exposes sins. It also warns and convicts sinners. Remember what God told Adam? Don't break my law. Don't eat from this tree. What will happen? Here's the warning. You will experience death. So the law not only exposes my sin, it warns me of what happens when I sin. And the law comes to do these things, but in the end, the only thing that it does for me is it shackles me to my moral record. Because of the law, I can't escape what I have done and what I am doing in terms of sin. If all I have is the law, it is a fabulous spotlight on my immorality. But it doesn't fix it. It just exposes it. So in a way, the law, the more I'm around the law, the more shackled I am to my inability to get beyond my immorality. And so this tension between God's holiness and my sinfulness, right, this ever-present tension is there. And if all I have is the law, all I have is this reminder, God is holy and you are not. God is holy and you are not. And that's what Moses brought, the law. But look at what Jesus brought. He brought grace and truth. Now we'll start with the word truth because that word truth means that he brought all the same truth that Moses brought. He didn't bring a different truth, right? He validates the Old Testament. He says, that Old Testament, the, the old, the law, the Old Testament, it shows us who God is. It shows us where we fall short. So Christ says in the Gospel of Matthew, what? I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to do what? To fulfill it. So the law is there in the Old Testament demanding things of us. Do not covet your neighbor's possessions. Do not cheat on your spouse. Do not lie. Do not murder. The law is commanding things of us, and you are sitting here going, man, I'm guilty. The closer I get to the law, the more guilty I realize that I am. And Christ comes. He incarnates. The word becomes flesh to do what? To fulfill the demands of the law. That's why we see in Christ this beautiful, perfect example of what it means to live according to the law. So he didn't do away with truth. He fulfilled it but he brought something with him. It's not just truth, it's truth in what? Grace. Grace. 
So let's talk about what that means then. If the law does these things, it points us to the character of God, it exposes my sin, it warns me, and it shackles me, then what does the law do when you add grace to it? Here's what it does. It doesn't just point me to the character of God, it ushers me there. It's different. It's different for you to come to me and say, hey, do you know how to get to uh, Starbucks? Right? If I say yes, it's that way. You go down here, you take a ride, and I give you instructions. That's one thing. That's what the law does. It points you. But ushering is different. That's when I say, hey, follow me, and I'll take you there. Right? So where the, where the law simply points to God, when we add grace to that in Christ, it ushers us to the character of God. Not only that, it washes over our sin. The law exposes my sin, but grace and truth washes over my sin. This is a beautiful and freeing thing. Where the law simply warns me of what will happen, if I break God's law, when you add grace to the truth, it welcomes and invites sinners in. Let's talk about that for a minute. How many people, maybe you've thought this, I can't go to church, I'm just... I'm just too much of a sinner. Like, I, I want what's at church. I know God, I can find God there and good things there, but man, if I show up, the walls will fall down. And you've thought that, or you've talked to somebody who's thought that, right? Because if I just go there and they shine a light on my sin, holy cow, they're going to run me out of town. So where the law gives warning, the gospel comes to us, grace and truth, and says, yes, you are a sinner, come in anyway. Amen. Man, aren't you glad? The 80% of you who were honest a minute ago and said, I am a sinner. <laughs> ben is doubly glad. He raised both hands. Right? The law just simply says, this is why you can't come in, but the gospel comes and says, this is why you can't come in, come in anyway. Grace and truth. Rather than shackling us to our immorality, it sets us free from shame and guilt. And ultimately, it transforms us into the image of Christ. Grace upon grace never does nothing when you receive it. Sometimes the transformation is slow, but it always is working in us to transform us into something better. It's not just the truth telling us what God is like. It's the truth coming to us with grace saying, let me make you like God. Amen. Let me work in you in such a way, right, that you're different. And so grace comes to transform us into the image of Christ. Now, here's what we have to understand. Grace could only come to us through a mediator who was able to obey and fulfill the law. Now we begin to see the significance of the incarnation. We desperately needed Christ to come and dwell tabernacle among us. That's what was missing in that tension between the law and the sinfulness of man in the Old Testament. Christ comes as a mediator of grace and truth. I had a situation happen um, this past week at a, at a local building supply store, which will remain unnamed. And... Um, and it, and it was this really scary situation. I, I spent a lot of time there recently, and uh, this was like uh, one of my, my daily trips to the store, and I was in, I was trying to get a, uh, a toilet. And, uh, and at this particular store, uh, sometimes they put things way up in the air on a shelf, and you have to get them down. You know, the thing you need is up there, and all the things you don't want or need are right here. 
And so um, I had to go get somebody to come bring a lift over to the aisle to get the toilet down, big heavy toilet off the top of the rack, okay? And so anyway, um, when you do this at this particular store, they, they fence off the aisles where you can't get to, onto the aisle. You have to stay at a distance because you don't have the credentials to be on the aisle. You're a customer. And so they go with the lift and they get it down. And the first attempt, this gentleman goes to get the toilet down. I'm yelling, wrong toilet, which is not the thing I've ever yelled before. <laughs> I don't think. Wrong toilet. But he can't hear me because he's so far down the aisle and I can't get to where he's at. So I just have to watch it kind of in slow motion as he pulls this toilet off the shelf, on the lift, down the lift, drives the lift to me, gets off the lift, moves the fence. And then I step in and I say, hey man, that's the wrong one. Like, thank you, but that's the wrong one. He says, that's the wrong one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll show you. It's that one over there. He said, okay, okay, I got it now. So we set this one aside and I get behind the fence. He shuts the fence and he goes back down the lift. He goes up and he's looking. He's like, no, not that one. He, he scoots forward. Now he's 20 something feet in the air. Not that one, scoots forward. But what he doesn't see are the trusses that cross the aisles. And the truss is lower than the full height of this lift. You catch where we're going now. So as he's looking for the right tool and he's driving this thing forward, it catches on the truss and it kind of rocks back a little bit. Now he doesn't see the truss, so what does he do? He tries it again. He tries it a third time and I guess the alarm on this thing shuts it down and it locks in this position. The front was this high off the ground. And I'm watching all this in slow motion. Now, I'm yelling, right? You're lifting your head in the beam, looking above your head. I'm yelling at him, trying to, because why? This is going to be ugly. I mean, best case scenario, we're going to shatter a toilet all over the concrete. Worst case is we're going to shatter a, an employee all over the concrete. Right, this guy's headed for danger. But I don't have the credentials to get inside the fence to go to him and say, listen, shut it down. So what do I have to do? I have to leave and go find somebody who has the credentials. Somebody who's qualified. And I go grab another employee. I'm like, hey, dude, you need to go over here now. Put your stuff down. Come here. There's a guy about to hurt himself. So he comes over. He sees it. He's yelling. Guy can't respond. Can't hear. He's still beep, beep, beep. Moves the fence. The guy goes running in there. Shut it down. Hits the kill switch. Whew. And this thing's rocking in the full air. Now, I ended up leaving the toilet. I came back at a later time. Because <laughs> they, they had to come with another lift. And they had to rescue the guy on the lift before they could fix the lift to get the toilet down. So I just left. I was like, man, whew. He's safe. But here's the point. I'm sitting there desperately watching all this go down, and I am not qualified. I don't have the credentials to go beyond the fence, to get to the lift, to, to tell him to shut it down, to save his life. i got to find somebody who is qualified, who has the credentials. The word became flesh, and he's the only one who had the credentials. To step beyond the veil, right? You and I couldn't get to him, so he comes to us to rescue us. And our situation is way more dire than being 20 foot in the air on a lift with a toilet. Eternity hangs in the balance. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us and brought us what? Grace and truth. This is what John is announcing here. Jesus is the only one who has the credentials to save us. As the son of God, both fully God, fully man, he was able to obey the law perfectly, fulfilling its demands, and then he was able to step behind the veil of sin and death and overcome. That's the gospel. That's what happens in the gospels. A lot of other things happen. Feeding 5,000, walking on water, water to wine, blind men see. All those things happen, but the primary story of what's happening is Christ is coming to step beyond the veil to become for us what we cannot become for ourselves and to bridge the gap between the holiness of God and our sin. 
So a lot of times you'll hear this illustration of two cliffs, and on one cliff is me and my sin, and on the other cliff is God and his glory, and I can't get there. And so the cross comes to do what? To bridge the gap. It's a real simple description or illustration of what John is talking about here. And then verse 18, I love this. And so here's his conclusion. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. And then he adds this to it. He has made him known. Two things. One, God is knowable. You can know God. You can know him personally. And he is only, though, made knowable through whom? Through Christ. So in Christ, we behold the glory of God. We know who God is. We know what God is like. How do we know when God speaks? You've got tons of examples of what God says when he speaks. Outside of even the life of Christ, God speaks. You're hearing him speak, but look at what kinds of things God says. To the woman caught in adultery, they were going to stone her. What does he say? Woman, where are your accusers? Oh, they all went home? Well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. That's what God says. If any man's going to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and come and follow me. That's the kind of thing God says. How do we know? Because we, we have his words revealed in Christ. We know what God says. And here John is simply saying, Jesus made God known. That's good news. You can know God today. I'm not just talking to the people who are not Christians right now. Every person in this room, you can know God today. It's going to take a lot of grace. How much grace? Let's just call it grace upon grace. Let's just move on because you're not going to be able to measure it. It's going to take a lot of grace, but it's not going to take the absence of truth. It's going to take truth and grace, and through truth and grace, you can know God. Listen, if you're here today, we talked about this last week. Becoming a Christian is not this superstitious thing of going through the motions and checking off boxes. It is a declaration of your heart. It is believing in your heart who Christ is and confessing with your mouth. Listen, if you believe the words that you sing in here on any given Sunday, you can become a Christian by singing the songs we sing in here. We, that's one of our goals every Sunday morning. Let's sing the gospel together. If you confess with your mouth, right, these beautiful lyrics of truth, and you believe it, like we're about to sing a song that says, I believe. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian by simply declaring these words and believing them in your heart. Or while we're singing, if you want to talk with somebody, you could come grab one of our prayer partners. They'll be at the front and the back. You can say, hey, how do I become a Christian? What do I need to do? And they can walk with you through this believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. And essentially, Christ has done all the doing. That's the point. What do I do? What do I need to do? Well, grace and truth came. The word became flesh to do all the doing so that all you and I have to do is to believe. Man, that's big time. So listen, I want to end today by praying for us, whoever you are right now, I want to pray that you would get to know God even more deeply today. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, listen, there is still more of God to get to know. I promise. I'm going to pray for you that you would get to know God even more deeply today and this coming week. And if you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ for the first time, I'm going to pray that before you leave here today, you would know God. Our worship team's coming up. Our prayer partners are coming forward. I just want to pray uh, for us. Father, we thank you for 
God, we thank you for the grace upon grace. Without the grace, God, we are hopeless. Father, the best we can do is know about you. If all we have is the law, we know a lot about you, but we don't know how to get to you. And in Christ, what we see today is that rather than us getting to you, you came to us. Thank you for bringing grace and truth to us, God, that we might become children of God by simply believing in Christ. So Father, now as we prepare to stand and sing what we believe, God, I pray that every person in this room who utters these words would believe them. And for maybe somebody here today who has never trusted in Christ, that today maybe the lyrics of this song would become their confession of faith. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move through our room and through our hearts as you dwell among us, that you would work in us. Make us more like Jesus today. We pray this in his powerful name.